Hello, dear listeners, especially those of you considering writing memoir or personal story or already toiling away at it. Every spring and fall, I teach a memoir intensive with Linda Joy Myers of the National Association of Memoir Writers. This spring's class begins appropriately on March 4th. It's called The Evolution of Memoir. It's a four-week series focused on some of the updates, changes, and evolutions we're seeing in memoir, and it includes time for questions and time to write. Classes will focus on new and evolving structures and techniques using time and space more freely and layers of meaning. We've been living through a memoir revolution, and this class aims to explore and showcase what's been going on out there in the world, complete with a list of recommended reading for books that we'll be covering in class. We invite you to march forth with us into this March and spring beyond. Join us for the evolution of memoir. Details can be found at magicofmemoir.com and on with the show. Hello, family historians, genealogists, geneticists, mystics, magicians, and memoirists. Today we have a really interesting show that applies to everyone. Family stories, how they get passed down, how we can listen to them as writers, and how they shape our lives. And I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, and we're going to talk with Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, whose memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, is, is just such a unique and sometimes surreal journey that spans generations. And I know you are especially swept away by it, Brooke. I was, yes. It's an interesting experience for me to read books by authors whose native language is Spanish because I speak Spanish and I studied in Spain when I was young. And sometimes I can hear the Spanish underneath the English. And there's this part in the book where Ingrid is writing about cuentos. And cuentos means tales, but it also means stories. And in Spanish, it means lies or exaggerations, or it can, depending on the context, right? And I think what Ingrid effectively does in this memoir is weave together the fact that, you know, some of the ways our lies or our exaggerations are also our stories and our truths. And so there's some blurring of the lines and all of that. Uh, and I, I just, yeah, as you said, I was swept away. I found it a very magical and beautiful story. The drama and the uniqueness of the man who could move clouds actually made me think of how undramatic my family's life story is, because in some ways, my family might be the opposite in the scales of drama. You know, there were there were no real life ghost stories on the Iowa prairies, at least not where my family was living. And, and most of my family's stories are just kind of rooted in cold, hard facts as I viewed them. But but on the other hand, every family has stories and, and maybe not the kind of stories that will fill a best selling memoir, but stories that tell us who we are. And I just want to mention this. I was I was recently given the assignment to write about a day that occurred 10 years ago uh, by the journal Past 10. And Past 10 is an interesting journal because all of its essays are about someone writing about a day that occurred 10 years ago. So it's an exploration of memory and how memory works because you have to construct your story out of fragments of memories. And you have to think about how to tell a larger story about, you know, a somewhat random day. And this day fortunately happened to be my birthday, but it's amazing how many of my birthdays I forget these days. And I dug up a photo, and in the photo, there were my brother and sister and parents, and we were back at my parents' house, but I couldn't figure out why we were there without our partners or families. And I finally got the answer. My brother remembered that we were there because my parents could no longer travel to see us. So this ended up being our last time where we were all together, just as like the family of five. And on this particular day, there wasn't really anything to do to celebrate my birthday. We had to drive to another kind of small town nearby, and we fortunately saw the movie American Hustle. So I read, I wrote about that day and going to the movie and driving in the car. And what I, I guess what I found interesting about this that I want to impart is that in the writing of it, 
I, I started focusing on this image of us driving home in the car. And I realized that this was a powerful metaphor for my family because we were, we were together, yet traveling elsewhere, yet not quite there together, but all of us seeking something beyond the small town we'd grown up in. And I realized how all of the vacations we took, the Sundays we went to Des Moines to shop for clothes, the movies we went to together, you know, so much of what we did were acts of the imagination for us. You know, we were trying to gain worldliness and sophistication. We aspired to something different and more, which meant that we'd, you know, make our homes elsewhere, which also meant that we'd never entirely be of a place. We'd always be a bit restless and searching. And and that's actually the way I think of the Midwest in a lot of ways. There are a lot of restless seeking people there. And that, that actually also leads to interesting endeavors and achievements. So what I'm trying to say is that people shouldn't be intimidated from writing their life story just because there aren't any big dramatic events to explore. You know, sometimes the smaller things can be equally as telling and, and riveting. And we all have dramatic stories. And sometimes we just have to sit down and write them and remember to find that drama, even if the drama occurs in a car going to a movie on a country highway. Yeah, that's an interesting meditation, Grant. And it's right on. I mean, Ingrid's book is full of drama, full of passion. Uh, one of the main through lines of the book is her family's effort to exhume her father's, uh, her grandfather's body, excuse me. Um, and they raise money to unearth him from his own grave because they're convinced that he is burdened by all of these notes that the townspeople had stuffed into his pockets and his open casket at his funeral, uh, asking him to do this or that, to heal this or that, because he was a curandero, a healer. And so there's this scene where the grave diggers are digging up the body and Ingrid writes, I, lo I just love this so much. It says, the grave digger says that if there's gas trapped in the grave, the face masks won't do much to protect us from fainting or even spontaneous spontaneous death. I remain unfazed. Dying at the sight of my grandfather's bones somehow doesn't seem to me like the worst fate. Like any good Colombian, I know I must die. And so I yearn for a good death, an exit that is both meaningful and dramatic. <laughs> Speaking of drama, um, yeah. you know, and it just is like, it, she has this you know, force in her that is, uh, just comes out so much in the book. Um, and it's just one of many moments that I thought to myself, her life is so many more uh, times over more wild, right? I mean, she has this rambunctious, big, loud, opinionated family that believes in ghosts and superstitions and healing rituals. Uh, and it's delightful in a thousand ways. Uh, but absolutely, like that, her story is more dramatic than mine didn't deter me. You know, if anything, it just kind of gave me inspiration and made me smile and think to myself, like, what is she doing well? Like, for instance, her scenes are so poignant. And so I think we can take inspiration you know, from any story to just do better with our own writing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that there are different types of memoir and different like levels of drama and different purposes for memoirs. And it's 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 interesting because when my father died, I wish he'd just written 10,000 words about his life, you know, maybe 5,000 words, you know, memories, anecdotes, images, remembered conversations, anything. And that would have been precious. And again, I think a lot of people don't do this because they don't think they have enough high drama to write about. But I wanted to like think about this through a quote that, that Ingrid mentioned in an interview about how to approach memoir writing. And she suggested that others who are working on their memoirs don't just collect family stories, but also pay close attention to how they are formed and told. And she says, when you're listening to a story at a family or chosen family gathering, become a student of structure and tone. What silences are kept? What silences are broken? 
surveying all that land can teach you so much about what to write about and how to do it. And Brooke, I don't want to put you on the spot, but since you're writing a memoir, how are you trying to capture family stories and how does a quote like this play into your process? That's okay. I'm happy to be put on the spot because, you know, I guess I would offer a little bit of an interpretation about how we reach to our families of origin to inform our stories. Like I'm the child of two therapists. And so this looms large in my personal experience uh, and my personality, right? I'm naturally good at extrapolating what people mean and understanding people's motivations. And I read people well. Ingrid is the daughter of a curandero mother who learned the secrets of healing from her father. And she too is good at naturally extrapolating what people mean and understanding people's motivations, right? But it's like kind of coming at it from different places. And so what I like about memoir is this idea that you are interpreting something from the lens of your experience. And I've always felt that I have the soul of a therapist in a way because hmm. I see the world through that lens very naturally as a result of growing up with parents who held that orientation and that way of seeing the world. And Ingrid is the same way. It's just that her lens is healing, but she writes about, you know, people's traumas and fears and concerns through this lens of a spiritual crisis. Uh, you know, and therapy might categorize it the same way, but using different terms, right? Because in therapy, we attribute everything to trauma and the head. And I think in this Latina context, it's more spiritual. Um, and so like in the Westernized world, it's very intellectualized. Um, and so much of Ingrid's story resonated with me because she's talking about it through the lens of like magic and divination and intuition, instead of just trying to make sense of things. Um, and so I, I love it. You know, I felt, I, I felt this sense of, um, companionship with her, you know, even though her lens was so different. And so I found, I guess what I'm trying to say, like, yes, I have reached through my own parents and, you know, interpreted my own story. Lots of times thinking about understanding the world through this very therapeutic lens. Um, and then when I finished reading her memoir, uh, you know, I, I saw the ways in which my own parents had passed down to me kind of a similar lineage, uh, just more grounded in concept theory and practice. And I think I hadn't really understood that before. Thanks for sharing all that. Since my mom is still alive, I've been thinking a lot about what I said about my dad, how precious it would be to just have 10,000 words. So I'm actually going home next week and I have this, this book of questions. I bought it Target of all <laughs> things and it's appropriately titled Questions to Ask Your Mom. And so I'm going to try to sit down with her each day. She has early Alzheimer's or the early stages of Alzheimer's. But I'm going to ask her some questions and record her responses. I'm so upset that I haven't done this previously. I always intended to. And I, I know there's actually a company. They're not paying us to say this, unfortunately, <laughs> but StoryWorth <laughs> that does the same thing. And, and they email you a question each week and you answer it. And then they compile a book after a year, which is a pretty cool way, actually, to, to write a memoir if you want to just collect specific little anecdotes and stories. So, Brooke, I'm, I'm, since I'm going to do this interview process, I'm curious, are you actively interviewing people for your memoir? And if so, how is that informing the story? Yeah, you know, I'm not. Um... I, I guess I need to not interview people because of the nature of what I'm working on. I, I think I know already, and I talked about this even in the conversation I had with my mom in the interview I did with my mom, that I need to not have her voice in my ears more than it already is. Mm. And I'm trying to follow the muse of memory. 
you know, I'm writing about a time period that spans from 2004 to 2015. So it's more or less a 10 year period in which many, many things happened to me. And I'm just making sense of it all as I wade through it. And so I think there will be a point, you know, I don't know where I'll have to like interview, but, you know, share with these people, especially my ex about like, is this what you recall happened? But even if they recall it differently, I, I, you know, I would change some things, but not everything. Um, so to date, I've been pretty guarded and protective of my work. And I think it's partly because it's just, I know that that's what I need for right now. Well, I thought maybe, Brooke, we could give some people or give our listeners some exercises in capturing family stories before we talk with Ingrid. And I know I've heard many stories from my parents and other family members that I've forgotten. So if we're not actively writing them down, we'll forget a lot of them. So I actually have a file on my computer of family stories, and I try to write down whatever I hear, no matter if it's a big story or just a small anecdote. And In fact, you know, small anecdotes can be very telling. My mom just kind of haphazardly let, told me that um, in the winter, my grandmother would order a big box of frozen fish and then they'd bury it in the ground and dig it up each week and have <laughs> fish every Friday mm. because in the depression, you know, they didn't have a refrigerator or freezer. And, you know, just that one little story tells so much about their lives. And in terms of prompts, though, I'm very enamored by a memoir my friend and former teacher Molly Giles wrote, and it's coming out this summer. And she's very noted for her flash fiction, her short pieces. So she wrote her memoir by recounting one story per year throughout her life. And so some of them are, are individual stories and some of them are connected. And, you know, some of them are just kind of drifting in space alone and separate, but they all add up to a life. But they're all very short. And I thought that was just such an interesting way to capture life. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm I'm loving how much people are experimenting with memoir these days. And there's so many different ways to capture family stories. And I would encourage writers to think about the stories that they know, the ones that they can't let go of. Uh, for those of us who have lost parents or someone central to our book, then trying to capture their mannerisms by recalling a story and just writing a scene that captures their voice uh, is a really great exercise uh, because it can help to bring that character alive again on the page and then it can make you feel close to them again. And, you know, there's this way that we have to show people what these people were like. And I, I think it's a good way to start with someone who isn't alive anymore. Uh, you know, and you're lucky if you have an audio recording or a video recording and you could transcribe that person's words. I think that's another interesting thing to do because so many of us have a central person or people in our lives that we're writing about, you know, or they loom large. And so to do these kinds of exercise that defines characteristics, speech mannerisms and quirks and stuff can just be something to, um, deepen our writing and to reacquaint ourselves with uh, people. And I think it's just, I noticed how well Ingrid uh, characterizes in her book. And so it made me want to aspire to think about character development more. Well, what a great exercise, you know, no matter if you're writing a memoir or not. And, and I think I want to take some time simply to describe my father's mannerisms and voice. So I can't wait to hear more from Ingrid after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. Her memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, was a Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award, and National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, and a winner of a California Book Award. Her first novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, was the silver medal winner in first fiction from the California Book Awards and a New York Times Editor's Choice. She is a visiting writer at St. Mary's College, and she lives in California. Welcome, Ingrid. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're so thrilled to, to talk with you. And your memoir is is such a complicated story, and it's one that's not easy to describe. And And I've heard you describe it as a series of stories that allowed you to understand what the book was about. So I was wondering if you could speak to how the process of putting together a series of stories helped you understand what the book was about. And then I was wondering if you speak to the title, too, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, and, and why does that capture the essence of the book, I guess? Yeah, maybe I'll start with your last question, since maybe it's an, uh, an easier way to, to explain the book. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was a curandero or a shaman, and he died when I was one year old. But I grew up hearing stories about him, and uh, my family always spoke about him in the present tense. And, you know, the, the one of the stories and one of the ones that captured my imagination the most was the story of him being able to move clouds. And all my aunts and uncles would tell different moments of having witnessed that. And as a young person, I was always very fascinated by that. And yeah, growing up, my mother became a curandera and his, the lineage of, um, you know, curanderos that my grandfather came from was a male line and women were not allowed to become curanderas. And so the reason why my mother was able to become a curandera was because she had an accident when she was around um, eight years old, where she fell down this empty well and she, you know, hit her head and she was injured badly and uh, went into a coma and had a period of amnesia that lasted for, um, you know, more than half a year. And then when she, you know, recovered and, you know, when once her memory returned and, and she remembered her, um, her family again and remembered who she was and remember, you know, like the, the life that she had lived up to that point, um, she started to as well, like hear things and, and see things that other people couldn't see or hear. So my grandfather said, oh, maybe this accident and this fall that you had was a sort of initiation into this other way of knowing, which is what, you know, curanderos, what they're kind of focusing on. So I had always thought and just kind of dreamed and wanted and imagined that I would in some way write that story. And I, for the longest time, I just didn't have access to the how, you know, how was I going to tell the story? How was I going to put it down? What genre does it belong in? The story that's so kind of wild and just, you know, bursting at the seams. And I had a, I had an accident um, in 2007 and I was already living in Chicago. So I was in the United States and I was on my bike and uh, someone opened their car door into the bike lane and I just crashed into the to, into the door and I wasn't wearing a helmet and I just, you know, flew through the air and fell and hit my head. And so I had, I got amnesia like my mother. So when my, when my family heard that I had amnesia, they, they were very excited <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and, you know, and they, they had this idea or, or this hope that maybe the story was repeating again and maybe my amnesia would be like the journey that my mother took. And at the end of it, I would return and come back with these gifts, which is not what happened. 
But I did through Amnesia kind of really had a conversation with the surreal because being in that state of not knowing who you are and not remembering, you know, anyone that seems to know you and like not, you know, returning home and then not recognizing anything, seeing yourself in a mirror and not recognizing that either. So for me, there was like a... um, Uh, a connection to surreality and to this question of what is real. You know, what, when we say, we think that we have like a distinct notion of what that is. And then there are that time in my life, I just, I felt so unsure about the nature of reality. And so it was through that experience that I just kind of went like, aha, I know how to tell this story now. I think getting amnesia in a way I felt like uh, it made me feel connected to my mother or like I suddenly belonged to the story that her life is telling. We have questions about memory and amnesia specifically, you know, and this loss of memory is so interesting and like, and and the repeating of the pattern. And I'm curious, uh, does the loss of memory provide unknown benefits? You know, like, does it, you talked about the surreal, which clearly there's a lot of that running through your book. Like it sounds like it really allowed you to access this part of self um, that maybe a cogent brain (laughs) wouldn't be able to. Yeah. I think, you know, as a writer, one of the things that we try to do all the time is to use language that defamiliarizes the audience with an experience that they already know. And that's when, you know, writing becomes, you know, vibrational or magical. It just touches you. It's because it's, you know, in a way presenting something to you that you already know, but in a new way. And so it kind of sinks deeper. I think Amnesia was like that, but with everything. It's a, it is a, you know, a a literal defamiliarization with the world and yourself. And so in experiencing the world through amnesia was really joyful experience. And I think also like experiencing myself in amnesia was very joyful just because it was so mysterious and unattainable. And at the same time, um, I I felt like I could kind of grasp the mystery of it, which means that I didn't try to solve it. (laughs) So I think like when we, when we are rooted in memory and we are kind of like rooted in our cogent, brains, as you're saying, we want to solve the mystery and like, we want to get the answer and we, you know, we want to know the conclusion of things. Um, And and amnesia was a state of suspension and a state of being present and a state of questioning, which in many ways I think is a poetic state of of literature that we try to um, embody all the time. So I, I, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting anything when I, when I had amnesia. But I, I think that maybe that's one of the, one of the most lasting effects or things that I gathered from that. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm very envious that you've had amnesia. And yeah. <laughs> I want to I go to some clinic where they give me amnesia. There's a movie about that. Is that right? <laughs> Jim Carrey. Yeah. Was it the oh, everlasting? Yeah sunshine of the eternal mind or something like that. That's right. His experience is different though, I think, but yeah. 
That was a wonderful description of it, Ingrid. Thank you. Well, memory plays such a large role in this book, both in terms of what's remembered and then how it's remembered and then what is not remembered. And, and you said in an interview, thinking of inheritance, I wrote a book that's about the things that you inherit and the things that you don't inherit and all sorts of memory, like a nation's memory or people's memory when political stories have been erased, cultural memory, personal memory. And then there's the amnesia that both you and your mother suffered through accidents that you've been talking to. So there's an inheritance in memory, but also an erasure of memory at play and then new pathways of memory or being, I guess. So I wonder if you could speak to the role of, of all these, all sorts of memory that you captured in this book. Thank you so much for that question. Yeah, I, I was thinking all about just the, the ways that memory forks, just both in the personal and in, on the national level, and what that means for story building, whether that's ourselves and our family or, you know, a country's identity. And there were so many intersections that I found just following the silences that we keep. So what are, you know, like, what were some of the silences that we kept in my family and is there a way in which that mirrors like a larger silencing that is that is happening? So I think once I started to follow that trail, I found all sorts of connections that were fascinating to me and that um, explained to me silences in my family that I couldn't have explained otherwise. And so one of them, like the most, um, I think, obvious one would be that in many curandero families, and, you know, this, I think this is maybe now starting to change. There's like an element of secrecy. And I was always very kind of confounded by it. Um, and there's a dimension that has to do with curanderismo being a practice that is rooted in indigenous traditions. And so with that would come, you know, whatever prejudice the culture might have against indigenous traditions. And so there's a type of silencing that happens with that. And as I was just looking into the history of how was that silence taught to, you know, to the culture, I came to this period of history in, in Colombia and many South American cultures uh, who were colonized by Spain uh, with the Spanish Inquisition, who would be policing all of the mixed people if they were um, practicing indigenous or even, you know, Black traditions or practices, then you, you would be accused of witchcraft. And in Colombia, what happened is that you would be taken to the Palace of Inquisition in Cartagena, where they had, and they still had, they have like a, a museum now of the Spanish Inquisition, and that there's all of, all sorts of um, torture devices on display, which are kind of, you know, black iron and just look brutal, as, you know, as you may imagine. And so it was through that process of, you know, torture, intimidation, that the Spanish Inquisition would get people to give up those practices. So like if you didn't refrain or you didn't kind of um, say that you were sorry for what you did, then you would be burnt at the stake. So many people ended up just, you know, saying, I'm sorry, and they would have to wear like this dress for like a, a period of weeks, two months, depending on what you did. Um, so then what happened is that a lot of these practices then became secretive and went underground. And so then that meant that, you know, culturally, 
you have now people kind of policing each other about what it is that we believe and we should all be Catholic and we should all act Catholic and any other tradition or any other way of knowing is witchcraft. We're just going to call it witchcraft. So, yeah, so I think that that explained a lot of attitudes that I that I was seeing in my family. Um, so I was very interested in the way that history occurs. And then we it's like these we inherit like these emotional echoes to a point where we might not even think back of where are these emotional echoes coming from. We're just kind of living in the echo. So it became important for me to to try to um, visualize that so that I could, you know, make make more sense of it. Gosh, thank you for that, Ingrid. And, you know, we have primarily uh, writers and readers who listen to this podcast. And so there's this great moment. Anytime I see a little piece of writing advice in a book, especially if it's a memoir or novel, I like to pull it out. And you have something very explicit in chapter 14. Uh, you share this story where your mom either prays or does an incantation for your father to rest or sleep but he ends up sleeping for two days and she reprimands herself saying she overdid it. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's talking to herself or maybe to you. And she says, you have to choose the words accurately. You see, you can't be inexact, a vagueness on your part and kaput. Uh, and then you store that away as a piece of a writing advice that you, you say it's the best writing lesson you will ever receive. So could you talk more about that? And for our listeners, how did you think about implementing exactitude <laughs> into this memoir? <laughs> I've always just really loved the way that my mother talks about divination or these other acts of knowing, which I think is when I hear her say it, I'm I'm just always thinking of how similar it is to storytelling because we also, you know, sit before a screen and then try to tune into something that we don't quite know, you know, and we always say like, we're trying to channel a story or sometimes we're trying to find a life, you know, we're, we're kind of grasping in the dark. We're trying to kind of find the door. Like there's other, all sorts of things that we say. So I, yeah, I've always been fascinated by the way that she just seems to kind of like listen to the air for an answer, which I think is, you know, what we do. We like listen to the air for an answer. And how did I think about exactitude in, in language? When I'm writing, I think my my favorite kind of linguistic state to be in is one where I am thinking in Spanish and then I am kind of composing a sentence in Spanish or I'm just imagining and seeing the world that I'm writing in Spanish. And then I do a, an automatic kind of quick translation into English so that I almost am doing like word for word translation And so sometimes when I do that process, there's some experimental edge that I really enjoy where it seems like I'm stretching the the English language to a point where it um, can either be read as poetic or just not quite, you know, following the rules of grammar, (laughs) you know, so just kind of like stretching it a little bit. And yeah, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to make the language seem like it's um, English on the surface, but, you know, Spanish within the structure and within the, the word choice and the decisions and how we would say and phrase something in Spanish. And so by the point that I am really thinking about word choices, really at the end, 
And I love to have this, I, you know, I have a printout of, of the book and I do this exercise where I take a blank page the end cover, like mo- all of the page and so that I can only see one line. And then I just read one line at a time and I will have about four dictionaries open. There's a, there's the OED, there's a Merriam-Webster, there's, um, I have a Spanish uh, dictionary, I have a Spanish-English dictionary open, I have a rhyming dictionary open, and I have like the etymology tab open. And so sometimes I am just really thinking about, there's so many words that English and um, Spanish share, you know, because they're Latinx. And so sometimes I will, and sometimes it doesn't um, correlate. So sometimes there's a word that I want in Spanish and the the Latin root is a different word in English. So the same Latin root would just kind of give you a different um, word altogether. And then I'm just kind of lost in the woods of <laughs> these two languages and, and just kind of like cycling through all of these different dictionaries to find the right word that both in sound and in meaning and in the way that it looks and takes place on the, on the page feels right to me. So it takes a long time at the end (laughs) for me to feel like the, like the wording is, is exact. If I ever edit you, Ingrid, and I'm sure I won't, I'm going to be very careful (laughs) with suggesting (laughs) any new words. She's like, that was intentional. (laughs) Yeah. I would not question that. That process was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I want, I, and I want to kind of uh, keep keep going into um, the writing process, the memoir writing process, a bit because Brooke and I were talking earlier about how to capture stories, and mm. we referred to a quote from you. And I'm I'm curious about how this played in your own process and with this book in particular. You said, "When you're listening to a story at a family or chosen family gathering, become a student of structure and tone." what silences are kept, what silences are broken, surveying all that that land can teach you so much about what to write about and how do you do it. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious, did you do this yourself and how were you both a participant in the story and and a writer of it? I did do this myself. You know, much of the memoir is trying to mirror the way that my mom tells stories. And she has this way of telling stories that I just find hypnotizing and, you know, I, I have all of these memories of, of being a girl, a young girl and family gatherings and there would be music and it's late at night and there would be this magical time of night when everyone's a little drunk and then everyone's a little getting a little quiet and then my mom would start to, to tell a story. And all of us kids would just kind of gather at her feet. And I remember so many nights of you know, she would be telling a story that I had heard before, probably, you know, by that point, like dozens of times. But she told it so well that there were many times where I just, I had to go to the bathroom and I could not move. Like I could not get up because I did not want to miss the way that she was telling it. And so I think to me, when I started to write, I just really just started to think back to that and think to like, what? what was she doing? (laughs) You know, what is like the sorcery that she was doing to kind of like keep us all so interested and invested and focused in the way that she was telling it. So I, so then I just started to formally pay attention to what she was doing when she was telling a story. 
And one of the things that I noticed and that I did start to implement in the memoir is this habit that she has of starting a, a story that already sounds magnificent and you know you're just kind of like at the edge of your seat and then in the middle of it start a new story <laughs> and you know and just kind of like it goes off and, and you know she kind of like shocks you with where she's taking it so that you you kind of you know with with some regret abandon the storyline that she started because you're now so interested in the second story that she's telling and there's always a point where almost like by the time that you forget why she was telling you the second story or like where you were even before, she'll pick it up again and she'll just finish the first one and and almost kind of like finish them both together. And the, when I noticed that, I was like, oh, that is just like such an amazing thing that she does. And so, yeah, and so there's many parts in the book where, I, where I'm mirroring and trying to kind of emulate the way that she orally does it. It's amazing. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear her story tell like that sometime, my goodness. Oh. Well, in the book, you take issue with how magical realism is considered by your writing instructors. And you wrote that these are like white centric distinctions about fiction and they don't resonate with you because for you, magical realism is just realism. And you're talking about like Jane Austen by comparison was just considered a classic. And you're like, that's ridiculous. Like that doesn't resonate with my life at all. Um, I'd love for you to say more about this because you've hit on a, like a really important cultural critique. And we're in this moment of reckoning where a lot of people are wanting to dismantle white centeredness extending into literature, of course. So when I read that, I was wondering, like, does it bother you that people try to categorize your work as magical realism? Or is that okay? And you're just trying to break open the construct? Um. I mean, I, I think that the most maybe important point that I was trying to make was that with Colombia and a lot of South America, there's a connection between the kind of like first people way of telling stories and the first people way like of seeing the world, like the worldview that I think most people would say that's magical realism. So, you know, so even right, like the little bit of like my grandfather could move clouds someone who is from the United States and is not, you know, South American might say, oh, that sounds like magical realism or like that sounds like fabulism, which kind of like my only complaint with that is that it otherizes and then exoticizes and kind of invalidates other ways of seeing or like other worldviews that are, you know, indigenously rooted and then I think that there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a confusion because then it's so many people have written, you know, magical realism who are not South American. And then there's some, there's uh, Russian literature that we would consider magical realism as well. Right. And so, so I think that's a mess, <laughs> but, but I think that yeah. what I, you know, like the differentiation that I was trying to make is to say, that sometimes we should be kind of aware of when we're talking about something that is indigenously rooted. Why do we call that like fictional or magical or like a legend or like, right? When it's simply just rooted in a different worldview. Yeah, what is the term now with nonfiction? It's like um, speculative, speculative nonfiction. 
And yeah, I don't know. I think that that's, it's a term that comes from the outside, trying to make sense of, of something that's other is what it feels like to me. If I was asking anyone in my family, you know, about like the stories that are in the book that are stories about their lives, if I told them, like, even that word speculating, like, where are you, is this kind of like you speculating about what happened? I don't think that they would say yes. You know, I don't think that they would be like, yeah, that's, you know, my speculation of what happened. So I think to me, what it feels like to me is that it's simply nonfiction. And what I want is, I think, for us to, I don't know, is that necessary to come up with like all of these terms or, you know, for, you know, my grandmother, who like one of the most important events of her life was that dream that she had, you know, the night that my grandfather died where, you know, he, you know, came to her that night in a dream and she like dreamt that they, you know, made love in her bed and they were not talking and estranged at that point. And when she woke up the next day, there was like, there was dirt all over her mattress and there was mud in her underwear. And that was the most formative event of her life, you know? And so to me that, that is, um, signaling that there's a different worldview at play you know that there's there's a worldview where what happens in dreams has the same volume and the same ability to affect someone's daily life as anything that happens in waking life so I think then we're just talking about a different you know a different way of seeing and understanding so, you know, so if I asked her, like, is that, were you speculating? Is that magical realism? She would be like, no, that's, that's my life. That's actually, and she was very, she told that story over and over and over and over again. You know, like I just grew up with her telling that story so much. It brought her closure. Yeah. And it was so, um, it just, yeah, it just, it was so moving for her. It brought her closure. It, um, and she just always said, like, the conclusion that she always said at the end of it was like, and, and now I know what it's like to make love to a ghost, you know? And so, yeah, so I think, um, I think that's nonfiction, period. <laughs> that's great. I love this. This, um, I've never really thought about the term magical realism. This gives us a whole, whole new view to it. You know, it makes me think about it so much. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. In closing, Ingrid, I, I read that you're now writing short stories. And, and I'm a writer who thinks a lot about form. And I'm more and more taken by shorter stories, actually. So I'm, I'm curious if writing in a shorter form has led you to any new creative epiphanies. I think that just working in 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 short form, it's a different um process altogether right I almost feel like for myself it feels like there's I have to try a bunch of different stories and point of views and it seems to me like they're the the ones that I tend to follow or tend to kind of explode into larger or yeah work that I that I want to pursue tends to be kind of like born already made you know, it's hard for me to, 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 I think, start with a draft that's not really there and then take it to a place where it's working. I think my process is more just trying a bunch of different things and then abandoning them if they're not kind of holding my interest. I think one of the lessons of, you know, working on short fiction for me is like the eternal 
lesson of um, introducing more play into the work. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in nonfiction, it's very easy to be so serious and to be so emotional and to be so kind of like grounded in the things that happen that you tend to forget about the play element and how important that that is to really activate a piece. So yeah, fiction for me is, and short fiction is, um, it just feels so playful in comparison. It's a nice feeling when you're writing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ingrid. You're welcome. This was wonderful. It was a treat. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Brooke, I'm intrigued by this week's book trend because it shows how marketing a book is evolving and and getting weirder in some senses, but also more creative and fun and yet less about the substance, the content and more about the pizzazz, the celebrity or the influencer in this case. I'm going to go out on a limb here to guess that this has something to do with TikTok. (laughs) You guessed it, Brooke. TikTok, which might be seen as a blessing and a curse to the book world. Atria Books has actually paid for TikTok Influencers Cruise, the Royal Caribbean's ultimate nine-month world cruise, and it spans 274 nights and visits 60 countries. The cost starts at $53,999 per person, just in case you're planning a vacation soon, and it can go up to about $117,599. So this cruise i think it's going to have at least a little bit of the tv show white lotus baked into it which is about the sins of wealthy people in exotic locations atria books is an imprint of simon and schuster and uh, the publishing company covered the influencers cost for his 18-day leg of the cruise to promote a few of their titles so the influencer atria is working with is named mark sebastian and he has 1.5 million followers on tiktok but he admits that he's not a reader and he's not even on book talk But Atreus sent him a list of books and he had his followers choose uh, which book he should read because he is only reading one of them. (laughs) So (laughs) not two, God forbid, on that 17 days. Anyway, what's your reaction, Brooke? Oh, my God. I mean, there's so much to say. That's I think that's the one thing that every book person has homed in on. We're like, oh, one book. You're reading one (laughs) book. Great. Um, Yeah, I find this to be inventive marketing, but highly questionable, if not ridiculous. I mean, there are so many legitimate readers on book talk who could introduce a real book conversation that would promote the book and engage people in the content. And, you know, people who are actually reading being the audience, I think that's another huge thing. Catherine Schmidt has this great newsletter, Publishing Confidential on Substack. We certainly recommend it to our listeners. Both of us are following her. Uh, And so she did a whole post about this, which I think is how you found out about it in me too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the TikTok influencer in question chose the one book, which was called The Last Day by Will Dean. And just so happens to be about a woman on a cruise, the only woman on board of what turns out to be a terrifying journey. So then this influencer, Mark, held a book club meeting on TikTok about the book. And for him, I mean, wow, what a payout, (laughs) I guess is what I'm thinking. Um, But the cruise itself has gotten a ton of coverage. It's being called social media's newest reality show. Uh, So I certainly appreciate that reference to the White Lotus. And stories have started to surface about 
the quote unquote cast of this nine month cruise, which means that people on the cruise are focused on antics, you know, all for ramping up their social media. I I mean, I'm tired just thinking about it. (laughs) And I'm guessing that reading books are really not so much part of their strategy to go viral. Yeah, Kathleen raised the good question of how many copies of The Last One by Will Dean will sell during and after this campaign, and I'm guessing not many. Um, So what do you think of this as a book marketing strategy, Brooke? I think that's the part that's so ridiculous. I mean, we don't know how much Atria paid for this cruise, but they didn't get it for free. So if it started at 50K, let's just say maybe they paid half that, you know, they could have gotten a steep discount. We don't know. Uh, But in order to earn out enough books to pay for even $20,000, they'd have to sell over 5,000 books or mm. more. Wow. And and that might not seem like a lot of books, but it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, Atria has more experience than most and they took this bet. It's their prerogative, of course. Um, but I think we as a culture overestimate the relationship between influence and actual consumer buying habits. It depends on the book, of course. I think followers of this guy, Mark, would probably be more likely to buy a different kind of book rather than a novel. That's just my thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I just don't know that his followers are going to buy in these kinds of numbers. I think they're probably just more interested in listening to him talk about anything if they're following him in that way. Um, But I'm also showing my deep cynicism for TikTok book clubs. You know, (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of really good ones. But again, I'd rather be like an influential book talk person. Uh, and I would love for Atria to share uh, with us the outcome of this expense, but that will never happen. There are ways to find out how many copies of the book sell, but we won't know how many sell as a result of the cruise. And maybe a lot of attention the story is getting will we'll end up selling some copies too. I mean, who knows? But it, it seems like a misguided campaign to me. I mean, if you want to create organic word of mouth marketing, you know, like you said, have a reader be at the center of spreading the word. Um, but I'm afraid we're, we're a culture that's that's too enamored with 1.5 million followers. On that note, though, we'd love to have 1.5 million listeners. Uh, we, 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 <laughs> we, recently, would, we would. <laughs> yeah, we recently hit our millionth download, which is which is so amazing. So we thank you for listening and downloading those million episodes. We will be back next week without high-priced influencers, but with help, writing tips, and a wise guest. So keep tuning in, spreading the word, and writing. Thank you.